Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from Cambridge, Massachusetts, in the haunted attic, where sometimes I do this show. Also in Cambridge, Massachusetts, I'm told. (laughs) is Washington Post columnist E.J. Dion. How are you today, E.J.? It's great to be with you and all and our friends. And our friends and the friends coming to us from our nation's capital. Of course, it's Thursday. So it, one is Dr. Kavita Patel of the Brookings Institution and her own private practice. How are you doing today, Kavita? I'm happy to report that because Norm and I were in D.C. that we averted a shutdown. So, you know, thank you for is- doing that. You know, we introduced Norm a variety of different ways. Norm Ornstein, of course, our our friend, uh, but I consider him kind of America's democracy whisperer. You know, mm-hmm. he is yeah. he is he is the person who can help us keep it going. Norm, what's going on? I'm from New Jersey, so you need to explain it to me real slow. What is happening in Washington? New Jersey is a good uh, framework for discussing some of it. <laughs> I'm, you know, it's a beautiful day here today, absolutely beautiful, but I'm not a happy camper today for two reasons. One is, and it's a reflection of so much of the disgraceful elements in our politics. There was an amendment on the Senate floor today by Tom Cotton to cut off basically all benefits from the Afghan refugees we are bringing in, and it got all 50 Republicans supporting it. Now. Uh, I watched, as I'm sure you did, some of the hearings over the last couple of days with the Secretary of Defense and our military Mm -hmm. leaders, as we saw Republican senators in the first hearing get absolutely indignant about how we had abandoned the Afghans. And now Mm -hmm. every single one of them wants to cut off those people who helped us, who we managed to get out at the knees. That's just, it tells us what kind of a cult we're dealing with. The second is that what should have been a, an absolutely routine vote on keeping us from having a government shutdown, just kicking the can down the road to December, 15 Republican senators voted against that, as all of them have filibustered the effort to deal with the debt ceiling, which is dealing with nearly $8 trillion in debt uh, rung up during the Trump administration. So it's a good thing you didn't ask me how am I feeling, uh, but I told you anyhow. That's a very New Jersey thing, even though I'm not from New Jersey. Yeah, although in New Jersey, we use different language when we say that. And, <laughs> uh, and I'm grateful that you didn't. Um, but uh, EJ, Norm uh, did not address the current negotiations regarding the uh, bipartisan infrastructure bill and the reconciliation package. Today, we learned that the most important man in America, President Manchin, has set the price at 1.5 trillion. That's as far as he's willing to go. 
apparently he told everybody this in July. And the rest of the Democratic Party, the president, speaker, the majority leader, and all the others who were aiming to try to help America catch up to the rest of the world in basic social programs seem to be out of luck because we are ruled by uh, President Manchin and Vice President Cinema. Or do I have that wrong? No, I think one of the things you're seeing is what a difference it would make if there were simply two or three more Democratic senators. And that we're in this situation, obviously, because with 50 senators, senators who choose to work their will against the broad wishes of the vast majority of Democrats in both houses have enormous power and they have enormous power. I was struck that to get a number out of a mansion out of mansion actually took a press leak because this was a leak of a document that Manchin had given Chuck Schumer, the Democratic Senate Democratic leader. But at least you've got a number out of Manchin. And the question, I think, will be, how negotiable is that number? If, if Manchin is serious, if he's actually offering as a starting point $1.5 trillion, that doesn't have to be the end of the story unless he chooses to say, this is as far as I'll go. At least on the package, the rescue package for the economy at the beginning of the year, Manchin made a lot of statements, made a lot of demands, but he actually settled fairly reasonably in the end. They didn't cut a whole lot of stuff out of that package. And so I think we need to know more about Manchin. The mystery, and potentially for this bill, a very dangerous mystery, is Kirsten Cinema. We have no idea where she's coming from. We don't know what she wants. We don't know what she's doing. I think mostly what the two of them want, as somebody suggested to me today, is they want to show they didn't give in to the progressives. And that may be more important than any particular demand they have in the bill. But I talked to a lot of people, including some quite moderate Democrats, who are beside themselves with some real anger at cinema, saying, what is she doing if she's not willing to tell us what she wants? I'm hoping, and I assume the people who put out this leak that Manchin made this offer, I assume people are hoping that now that Manchin's out there with a number, it'll increase pressure on cinema to do that. Uh, because otherwise, it's quite reasonable uh, for progressives to say, really, can we trust these folks? That's why they're they're threatening to vote against the bipartisan uh, infrastructure bill. I think it's pretty clear the, the answer to that question. Uh, there, there was, I would just point out as a side note, a Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut appeared on MSNBC earlier today and said that, you know, in his view, the question with the mansion number to begin with is, you know, is this gross or net? And does he, is he <laughs> yeah. talking about things that are paid for or things that are not paid for? And that may provide a little wiggle room in that number. Although I would say, you know, one of the things that strikes me is the president wanted the $3.5 trillion to all be paid for. So you can't say that it's inflationary and you can't say that it's going to add to the deficit. So that if you object to it, the only real reason you would object to it is because of the taxes. And, you know, these people are, you know, defending certain groups in the country that care more about their tax rates than they do about the well-being of the country. It's not my habit necessarily to defend Joe Manchin, but he has at least been willing to support some tax increases. 
you know, for example, he doesn't want to have quite the same increase in the corporate tax that Biden does, but at least he's willing to say he's willing to increase the corporate tax. With cinema, we don't know that. She seems to be objecting to all of the tax increases, which then means all of this would go on the debt because you're quite right, David. Biden has said all along he wants to pay for the whole thing. Let me add, David, that Manchin is a transactional politician. I would venture a guess that the number is not going to be the most significant element of this. We are probably going to end up somewhere around 2.25 trillion. They're going to, you know, go a little below the midpoint, which would be 2.5, maybe two. And you can do that while preserving the key programs. You can change the life of the programs, you know, have them go out five years instead of eight or 10 years. You can, as they've already proposed doing with some of the Medicare expansions, start them a couple of years later than you had originally proposed. The problem is the revenue side. And Manchin there too, I think, as EJ Mm -hmm. said, will cut a deal. It's not going to be a deal palatable to a whole lot of people. And one of the things that may be a kicker here is some of those House moderates like Josh Gottheimer really will not want to leave a deal on the table that does not reduce or change the impact of the state and local tax deduction, which is a killer for a state like New Jersey. And we may see Manchin and Cinema say no to that. Cinema is a problem here more on the revenue side, because she stood against most of those things that would reverse significant parts of the Bush tax cuts that are benefits to the wealthy. There are ways around that. And the question is whether she would negotiate seriously. I will say that, you know, the progressives in Arizona are going after her now tooth and nail. And that makes me a little nervous because the more they attack her now, the more she turns to the most pernicious forces who are happy to give her tons of money if she decided she wanted to run for reelection. I'd prefer to have them hold off on that until we see if she kills the whole package then go after her or really creates poison pills. Right now, though, they're not that far away, I think, from getting something that might be uh, perfectly palatable. Timing is a real problem here with the House. Vita. Kind of having lived on the Senate side, I actually think Manchin saying 1.5 trillion, I share kind of Norm's optimism, maybe that's the right word. What we need in a deal negotiation was a starting point, gave us a starting point. And so one, a deal is to be had to kind of all of your points. And, and number two, I mean, yes, Kristen Cinema could kind of throw like a wrench into things, but Manchin is seasoned enough to now know. I mean, the way kind of the Senate still seems to work is Manchin, you know, knew that when he put it out there, he did a little bit of like putting feelers out there and he knew. And, and certainly he would have gotten a quick call, even if he doesn't listen to Chuck Schumer, he would have gotten a quick call that said, what were you doing? What were you thinking? So the 1.5 is like, I think, the legitimate base upon which to negotiate. And then, you know, there's Nancy Pelosi doing what she can only do. She literally is the only person I can think of to do this job of holding that kind of razor thin majority and keeping it in line. Here's my question. Where is the White House? And I say this because I've watched Obama and the Obama White House struggle fail, and then at times succeed in their own ability to kind of manipulate and intervene. But the difference was that you had in in Obama, someone who really was not a seasoned Senate negotiator, had been in the Senate, you know, his one term. 
and the people around him were Chicagoans with a handful, you know, Pete Rouse is certainly like a decades long kind of dashel loyalist and knows how things work, but you didn't have Jim Messina. I mean, you had some veterans, not the powerhouse that you have in Joe Biden. Now, granted, he wasn't a domestic policy person, but he certainly knows how that body works. And I have to ask, because I've had very close colleagues who are in the White House, who when I've confronted them, and obviously my lens is kind of the health, we wanted to see Build Back Better kind of complete the vision of the Affordable Care Act, expansion of Medicaid for places that didn't, Medicare benefits like dental vision, hearing. And then I will just tell you, paid family leave. Now, that has been one of those like age old mantras on the Democratic side that if we could not make it happen, shame on us. All of that is pretty much looks like it is likely to be on the chopping block. Norm, you're right. They can put things out. But I've already talked to the House side, even the White House, the Economic Council folks kind of said, yeah, Kavita, those are too expensive. Dental vision hearing, paid family leave. Maybe we can put some Medicaid stuff in the out years and be able to get some of it that way. And I said, what are, what are you guys doing? I said, what on earth are we getting to give up any little thing that we have to actually tell the American people, you know, that Joe Biden did this? So I'm asking the three of you, where is the White House? And I get this very, very from even the insiders that that there is not as much ledge affairs this is basically Mansion Cinema, McConnell, Schumer, and Pelosi with Jayapal and you know others kind of barking on the side here. But yeah, I wanted to just ask, where's the White House? And then just do you share my concern that if I wouldn't even call it progressive? I don't think paid family leave is progressive. I don't think getting dental care and Medicare is that progressive. But if these things fail yet again, what on earth is there to even argue for? Democrats to even come back in the midterms, much less a second term, which I'm incredibly concerned about now. I wasn't as concerned about 2024 watching this debacle. I'm very concerned about 24. So first of all, on the number, on on what those cuts could mean, I am really worried about that too. I, I, I mean, on the one hand, I think Norm is right. There is quite a bit that can be done mm-hmm. within the framework of a smaller number. I already am uneasy with some of the start-stop dates because yeah. it takes time to get a program running and it takes time for people to realize what the program does. And there are some of these programs like the child tax credit that are clearly proven. And it sure would be better to live in a world where they could say, this is a good program, let us make it permanent. And that seems impossible. But I also share your worry, Kavita, that you may actually, in in order to fit this in, you may actually have to chop you know, more substantially. And I think the whole focus on a number has not been helpful because no one is going to go out mm-hmm. in the streets and march for, I will spend $3.5 <laughs> on whatever. You know, no one's marching for $3.5 as opposed to all the specifics you talked about. But number two, that number is not as big as it looks. Yeah, it's big, but it's $3.5 trillion over 12 years when the gross domestic product will be $288 trillion. So the whole thing is 1.2% of GDP, more or less. Uh, that's a big investment. I won't deny that. But it's a pretty small investment in a certain number of basic things 
that, as the president said, would make middle class and low income families breathe a little easier. Uh, So I am worried about that. I can't tell on the president question. On the one hand, he seems to have jumped in some uh, at this point, but you are hearing off the Hill some complaints that he's not talking to enough people. Mm -hmm. Some people are feeling left out. It's all about mansion cinema. Now, in his defense, it really is all about mansion cinema. If you can't get them, the whole thing collapses. But I, I think you get a sense that he's hearing this. As somebody pointed out today, there's almost nothing on his public schedule. And I think there's almost nothing on his public schedule because he's on the phone a lot today. And so I am hoping, uh, you know, he's already, I think, shown that he's more comfortable with congressional outreach than President Obama was. You know, it wasn't one of President Obama's favorite things, uh, where it's it's clearly something that, that Joe Biden enjoys. But I think they are going to have to step up and I, at least I get a sense they're getting that message. Maybe you call them and let them know, Kavita, but they seem to be sort of there now. Oh, let me weigh in. Uh, first, Kavita, you're, you're right that paid family leave, child tax credit, universal pre-K are uh, not progressive. They're what every Western democracy has. And, but let's keep in mind that Marco Rubio, who I've gone from calling little Marco to microscopic Marco, said it was all Marxist today. That's where they are. I'm actually- The pro-family Karl Marx. Yeah, Yeah. that's right. We we should distort it to say Marco Rubio says Karl Marx was pro-family. Yeah. Um, I remember when Karl Marx said that old people with teeth who could hear were the opiate of the people. That's right. Uh, I'm a little more positive about the White House I think for a long time, there was not enormous involvement, but that was because Chuck Schumer basically wanted to deal with this in the family. And Mm -hmm. uh, the president, even though he spent 36 years in the Senate, is not a part of that family in the same way. What they did have for a long time, and it continues, is a very substantial involvement by Steve Braschetti and Louisa Terrell, who's as good as it gets when it comes to a congressional liaison. And she knows the Senate. And now they've added in Susan Rice. And I think that's to deal with some of this. What can you cut? What can't you cut? How can you handle it? Frankly, when it comes to the healthcare stuff, if we're talking about a choice between firming up the Affordable Care Act and making sure the subsidies are there and even expanded and doing dental or hearing coverage for Medicare, As a Medicare recipient, I would say I'll take the former rather than the latter at this point. And uh, Kavita, you and I are not real happy that they didn't include mental health coverage uh, when they're Mm -hmm. moving in in that direction with Medicare. But that's a quibble uh, down the road. More than likely, something big or good is going to have to go, which is going to be deeply unfortunate. But the critical thing now is they've got to get a bill and they've got to get a bill that is a reasonably large, and they've got to be able to declare victory. And what I've seen is, you know, last night, the president went to Nationals Park and was in the dugout for the congressional baseball game. And the pictures of him, uh, other than the great picture of him meeting with the four presidents who do the run around the uh, infield, was uh, on the phone. And I'm sure he was talking to relevant people. Right now, in some ways, besides the pressure to get what will have to be 
the bones of a structure of a deal, the amounts, the uh, basics of what will be there and what will be there in the taxes without having it written. One hopes it will come sometime today or tonight. Mm-hmm. And then it's a question of how masterful Nancy Pelosi is at getting a vote done that will bring in the progressives when they're not going to be voting first on that reconciliation package, which is what Jayapal and the others have demanded, which is not going to happen. And I think the way to do that, and this is something that I actually, a couple of weeks ago, reached out to Sarah Bender at Brookings to make sure I had it right, that when a bill passes the Senate and then passes the House, the Speaker doesn't have to send it to the President, doesn't have to send it to the enrolling clerk and then have it enrolled and sent to the President. She can hold that bill indefinitely. She could actually hold it till the end of the Congress. And I'm hoping that the way it works now is they'll get a vote sometime late tonight. They'll pass this bipartisan bill. It will be held with the promise by the speaker that it will be sent to the president as soon as the Senate votes on that reconciliation package with the deal. And that'll take a week or two. And I'd add just one other little kicker here, which I sort of pointed out a couple of days ago. Mitch McConnell, by refusing to let the Democrats raise the debt ceiling, you know, having said, as he did, it's up to the Democrats, but then filibustering, so it wasn't up to the Democrats, is forcing this to go into the reconciliation bill, which the Democratic leaders don't want to do because it's a little unwieldy and it'll take more time. But if you force that into the reconciliation bill, that changes the dynamic for a mansion and a cinema. You get a bill on the floor. And if you get 49 Democrats, but say Kristen Sinema decides not to vote for it, she's not just bringing down all of these Democratic priorities. She's bringing the economy into a recession and causing 15 million jobs to be lost and more chaos to take place. So you're ramping up the heat and the pressure on Democrats to actually do the right thing. And it may be that that's what it comes down to. Let me approach this from a slightly different angle. And I'm always skeptical when people start talking about communication strategies. But I want to sort of pick up on something you you said there, EJ, about people not going into the streets to march for $3.5 trillion bill. I think in some respects, and I've been as strong a supporter of this administration as anybody, but I think in some respects, this has been so far a communications debacle. And the reason I think it's a communications debacle is I don't think anybody knows what we're talking about. I mean, with the infrastructure bill, it's roads and it's ports and, you know, it's things. We know what a bridge is and and we do. Nobody knows what reconciliation is. Nobody knows what Build Back Better is. And when you say 3.5 trillion, the Republicans say, oh, that's spending and taxing and a safety net. And that's what the bill is to them. It's not grandma having her teeth. It's not being able to hear. It's not enabling kids to have early childhood education. It's not free junior college. It's, it's nothing that means anything. The Democrats have failed. You know, and there was this thing, and I've quoted this over and over again, but my old friend Don Baer from the Clinton administration would always say, we're real, real good at coming up with a thousand reasons to do anything, but never just one. What? is this about? The American people support each of these individual programs. 
Can't somebody say here the three reasons we want to do this? Doesn't that have a political consequence? Or am I just naive? And it's really all, how high can we get Joe Manchin? And then we'll let the American people in on what this is later. Well, you know, the column I wrote today for The Post went back to the Affordable Care Act and the problem with a relentless focus on a process that seemed to last forever. And it sure did last for a long time. And you know, what I said is if you leave milk out long enough, it curdles. And I think that the very nature of this process and the fact they may have to go on further and what you're hearing about is, well, the moderates say this and the progressives say that, but it's not about enough about child care and elder care mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you know expanding health coverage. And by the way, dealing with the climate, which we haven't even mentioned yet. And that's another thing I'm worried about if the bill gets too small. Now, some of this is the cost of the process, the distorted, crazy process we have created in the Senate because of the filibuster and the way the filibuster has been abused. So that all of this stuff, the only way to get all this good stuff passed is to put it in one big bill and make sure you can get your party and the the Democratic Party senators uh, to vote for it. And so I think that in itself has created a messaging problem. Having said all that, I think it would have been good if the president and Democrats had had some particular events around particular parts of the bill uh, at child care centers and other places. And they've done some of that. Uh, You know, they've done some electric car stuff. They probably should have done more of that. But even if they had, I worry that given the way we have to structure things now in our public debates, uh, you got to mush it all together and it gets lost. If they pass it, that's where they're going to have to kick in. They're, you know, If they pass this thing within the next few weeks, it's a year to the 2022 election. They got to do one heck of a job of making clear what they have done for people. And that's where they may begin to solve this messaging problem, which I think you're right about, that, it, that uh, nobody knows, very few Americans know what's in here. Norm, you know, I think you made a really good point a moment ago about this, which is regardless of where we end up, and it's not going to be 3.5 trillion, it's going to be 2 point something trillion, and it's not going to be the whole bill. The White House has an absolutely urgent problem, as described for EJ, of immediately presenting this as a victory. And frankly, if I were in the White House right now, I would be having a team that, you know, kind of a war room focused on how do you get this out and present this as a big victory, two big bills added to the American Rescue Plan, added to, you know, everything else that's gotten done? Because we have to keep our eye on the ball. And the ball is that if we lose Democratic majorities in the Senate and the House in 2022, democracy in the United States is screwed. And to me, you know, it, it's, it's people say, well, you know, that's, that's the next issue. No, that's this issue. If this is perceived as a flop, we are all in jeopardy of of losing something we hold precious. Or am I overstating that? Oh, you're not overstating it at all. And I uh, agree with you. Of course, this is an endemic problem for Democrats who are far better at governing than at framing these issues. And there's just not a level of unified understanding of how to communicate 
you know, the Republicans don't have a meeting every Tuesday where they develop their message points, but they know when the messages are out there, everybody just sort of jumps on board. In this case, this is something I wish the president had done, and it gets to your point about 2022. I would like to have seen the president make multiple trips to Ohio, where there's a pivotal Senate election and the two Republican candidates are among the most monstrous people I have ever seen in action. Josh Mandel and J.D. Vance, each competing to be more monstrous than the other. And I would have liked to have seen him go to the suburbs of Columbus and talk about home health care, which is going to be big for an awful lot of these people. I would have liked to have seen him gone to Akron and talked about the uh, the Universal Free Community College. Mm -hmm. Do the same thing outside uh, uh, some of the big cities outside Charleston, West Virginia. Don't make it a focus on West Virginia, but go to some of the states where there are pivotal Senate races and frame it in terms of, of what this bill is about and what the Democratic vision is about. The president could have done that. And I think the failure to do that and to make it clear that this was a vision and that this is part of a larger package is going to hurt. You know, but let's also face it, this administration has not been helped at all by the general frame of the mainstream press, which has continued to focus on the $3.5 trillion and not look at it in terms of how much it is each year. You know, somebody made a point the other day that we don't look at the defense budget as $7 trillion. We look at it as $700 billion a year. So we should be looking at this as $350 billion or $300 billion a year, which takes it to a completely mm-hmm. different level. But, you know, you can't dictate what reporters are going to do or what the discussions are going to be like on CNN or MSNBC. But what you can do is try to get out in front of it and force them to accept the frame that you have created. And that has not been done. That's absolutely true. I just want to say, first of all, and it's a revenue bill. And so, therefore, it's not $350 billion a year. And economists have noted that it's a growth bill. So it actually produces net growth for the economy, which is more net income to the United States. And, you know, we're pretty bad at spending that. The Republicans did a tax cut a couple of years ago, which they referred to as a trillion dollar tax cut for the middle class. It was actually a $5.5 trillion benefit to the rich. And so how you spin it is everything. The good news is the public gets some messages and gets some facts. That Republican tax cut was never popular. They never managed to sell that. There was quite a lot of polling that showed it was much more a liability than an asset. So I think we should be wary of sort of building up the Republican genius message machine too much. I mean, the other example is no matter how he sold it, President Bush couldn't sell the privatization of Social Security. And, you know, the idea you're putting money in people's pockets is pretty popular. The top line polling on that was fairly popular, but people got pretty quickly that this would lead to reductions in benefits and ended up getting killed by Republicans in Congress who said this is going to kill us at the polls. We can't do this. But to go back to your original point briefly, David, I think it's actually going to be very important for progressives to grant Biden a victory on this, because 
the way this has gone, progressives are pretty mad about uh, the fact that they've been really loyal to Biden on this. Bernie Sanders, you know, came down from six trillion, and yeah, that was a negotiating figure for sure. But this is not everything progressives wanted, and the final bill is going to be smaller than the one they hoped to get. And yet, I think they're going to end up having to, if they actually spend their time saying it's inadequate, that's actually going to backfire on the Democrats. So I think it's going to be very interesting to watch what progressives do at the end of these negotiations. I think somebody like Jayapal is very politically shrewd, and I think she understands this. I think Sanders understands this, but I think that's going to be a big deal if they have to shrink the bill down. Yeah, but all credit to the progressives. They haven't been the problem here. They have been supportive. Manchin and Cinema thought when they initially started, they could blame it on the progressives, but it's falling on Manchin and Cinema and the Problem Creators Caucus. Kavita, the, the final word here. All right. So I, I, the Republican agenda, by the way, and their secret, non-secret Tuesday meetings is basically undermine anything in the democracy. And it seems to be working from January 6th on forward. It, it actually seems to be embodied. I'm, I'm actually going to shift for a second and get to the, uh, since it was a week of hearings, I know our theme is the bill. I just want to take a moment and see if any of you did listen or watch. I did the judiciary hearings on the shadow docket on the Supreme Court. Seen as we're about to kick into a Supreme Court session, which will have, I think, an incredible amount of impact, not just on reproductive health. But I'm curious, and if you didn't, I can give you the, I can give you the synopsis. All the Republicans said, I don't know why the people are complaining. This is a process that's been in place. Obama used it. They used a shadow docket then. They used it in previous administrations. And the Supreme Court can't do anything about policy. They have to just act on what's brought in front of them. So I am curious, kind of. Uh, as we get past, uh, hopefully, a little bit of this uh, BBB, BIF, BFF, where are we going with what might need to happen with the Women's Health Protection Act, with what's on the docket for the Supreme Court, and what kind of what we can expect in the future? Sam Alito gave a speech today at the University of Notre Dame where he attacked the critics, and this was really a response to that hearing. But also, he mentioned by name uh, a couple of uh, uh, critics in which he said the shadow docket, that's just ridiculous. It's all mm -hmm. these people trying to undermine uh, the court and its legitimacy. And it was nonsense. There is a shadow docket. It is a way for them to keep from having much individual responsibility for earth-shattering decisions. What one of the things that Alito said that was very deceptive was he said, there's no precedent that's set when we do these cases. But mm -hmm. the fact is, lower courts treat this as precedent. He said that when they dealt with the Texas case, mm -hmm. that they didn't particularly want or need to. It was something that had been brought by the people wanting to overturn it, and they wanted an emergency decision. And it didn't have any precedent, and it didn't deal with Roe v. Wade. And of course, what it did do was it enabled this destructive law, which is basically blows up Roe v. Wade, to take effect immediately. So I don't have a, a lot of respect for Sam Alito in particular. He issued a decision on uh, voting, the Brnovich decision, that was, I think, the most deceptive and dishonest that I have seen in a very, very long time. There's a partisan hackery involved in a lot of ways in the Supreme Court. And 
by taking up the Mississippi abortion case, they have put front and center what happens to Roe v. Wade. And I still don't think they're going to say in one fell swoop, it's over and done with. But they're not going to just chip away little pieces at a time. They're going to chip away with big, big chunks. When John Roberts says, as he did in the Texas case, that the court is acting in too right wing and irresponsible a way, then we all have to start shuddering. And I think we are seeing the costs of Republican court packing by killing Merrick Garland and rushing through the last appointment of the there is, I think, all of these speeches that Republican, I'm sorry, a Supreme Court justices in the conservative wing of the party, of the court, all these speeches they're giving are very defensive. And I think they're defensive because they know that there is a growing movement in the country against a conservative activist Supreme Court. Alito's decision on voting rights was astonishing. There were conservatives always say judges shouldn't make law. That rewrote the voting rights law from the bench. It was outrageous. I think that the conservatives realize they are now in for a fight. There are more and more progressives who are saying that enlarging the court is needed to undo conservative court packing. And so I think that we're going to hear more from the Hill. Hearings like this are really important to underscore that we are facing a Supreme Court of a sort we haven't seen since the early New Deal or even the Gilded Age era. This is a Gilded Age kind of Supreme Court. uh, And I think that's going to become an issue in politics. And last point, the Virginia election this fall, I think, is very significant for testing how strong is the Mm. still the anti-Trump sentiment? How much does concern about the attacks on democracy? How much does the Texas law motivate pro-choice voters? There seems to be the conservative voters in Virginia seem to be more motivated now than more moderate and progressive voters. Um, that is going to have to change for Terry McAuliffe to win. And I think that's going to be a test of where the energy is. Yeah, no, no doubt that's true. Kavita, you know, I think uh, one other answer to your question was offered up this week by the truth teller and conscience of the Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor, who made some remarks and said there's going to be a lot of disappointment mm-hmm. in the law, a huge amount. And I think the prognosis for this court and what we are going to get from them in the year ahead, not just on the shadow docket, but elsewhere on reproductive rights, on gun control, on voting is very, very grim. And it, you know, it may become a trigger issue as people see that it's an activist court. And among the members of that court, Alito may well be the, the worst. And that's saying something. I'd like Sonia Sotomayor to do a nationwide tour uh, because I agree with you. She is an extraordinary voice. Her decisions are so clear, so crisp. And uh, yeah, she's a remarkable person. And I'm afraid she's going to have a lot of dissenting to do. Yep. I'm afraid so. But I encourage everybody to read her dissents. The typical sort of politeness of law has fallen away, and her dissents have become fiery and the clearest possible kind of truth telling. In any event, thank you all. This has been a very helpful discussion. 
Norm and uh, EJ and Kavita, you are among the smartest people I know about all of this, and we're lucky to have you, and hopefully you will come back soon. For those of you who want to see what else we've got coming, go to the dsrnetwork.com. And uh, if you're there and you like what we're doing, click on memberships, help support what we're doing. There's, there's a lot to come. And if you think the worst is behind us, America, if you think we've gone through the rockiest parts of all of this the past four years, you're not paying attention. So we'll be back and we'll be talking about it all. Thanks to everybody. Thanks to you three. And uh, be careful out there, everybody. Bye-bye.